This week, Charlie Munger died. He was a legendary investor and vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, one of the most valuable companies in the world. He was just a few weeks shy of his 100th birthday. What did you think when you heard that Charlie Munger had died? I said, really? (laughs) Because I thought, I actually sincerely thought he was going to live to, I don't know, 120 or something like that. Forever, maybe? (laughs) Yeah. Our colleague Jason Zweig covers investing. And he says not only did Munger live to 99, he also worked at an intense pace until the very end. I mean, he was, Charlie Munger was probably busier than a lot of people in their 30s and 40s. And when my colleague Nicole Friedman and I did a dinner interview with him in 2019, we got there at about six o'clock and six hours later at midnight, he was still going. (laughs) We were exhausted. Munger was best known for his partnership with the billionaire investor Warren Buffett. Together, Buffett and Munger became one of the most iconic duos in the world of business. And their annual shareholder meetings became a must-see event. Tens of thousands of people would come from all over the world to hear these two men just take questions from basically an open mic for hours on end. But most of it wasn't about finance at all. It was about how to think and how to live. And that's what I think people really admired about Charlie Munger. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, December 1st. Coming up on the show, why so many people wanted to hear what Charlie Munger had to say. wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. The story of Charlie Munger's rise to fame begins when he met Warren Buffett. They first met in, in 1959, And it was like best buddies at first sight. I mean, they met at a dinner that was arranged by mutual friends. Buffett's wife, his first wife, later said, I think when they first met, Charlie thought Warren was the smartest person he'd ever met. And I think Warren thought Charlie was the smartest person he'd ever met. At the time, Munger was working as a lawyer. And Buffett wasn't the famous billionaire he is today. Back then, he was just an investor. His strategy was to buy up the cheapest businesses he could find, even if that meant they were nearly dead. You know, Buffett had been obsessed with what he called cigar butt companies. And he used that term because he said it's like a cigar butt that you pick up off the curb of the street and you light it with your match and you get one more puff out of it and then you throw it in the sewer. And that was what Buffett did in the 50s and 60s. And Munger said, why are you bothering with this? You know, buy great companies when they're reasonably priced 
and you'll end up doing much better and you won't have to sell them. You just keep them and you hold them forever. His theory was if you bought a great business at a good price, it would end up growing so much in the future that the fact that you didn't buy it at a bargain price would just fall away because the future earnings would be so great. And he had this saying, forget what you know about buying fair businesses at wonderful prices. Instead, buy wonderful businesses at fair prices. Yep, and that really sums it up. Buffett took Munger's advice, and the two became close friends. They started investing together in the 60s, and it was Buffett who said to Munger, you should quit your day job. And you should just become a full-time investor, which Munger did. And then eventually he joined Berkshire. Berkshire Hathaway. It started out as one of those cigar butt companies. It was a declining textile business when Buffett bought it. But he transformed it into a massive conglomerate. Munger became vice chairman of the company in 1978. What did Berkshire Hathaway do? And what made it so legendary? Berkshire Hathaway is not a mutual fund. It's not a hedge fund. It's not an investment partnership. It's a giant holding company. So it can invest in individual stocks, which it does, but it can also buy other companies outright. And it can buy anything else that Buffett and Munger think is worth owning. At one point, they were one of the world's largest owners of silver, They've owned, you know, tons of treasury bonds. That flexibility has really been the key to their success. After they joined forces, Buffett gave Munger a nickname, the Abominable No-Man. Because every time Buffett had some bright, shiny new idea for something to invest in, Munger would shoot it down. Munger would say, you know, I don't know, Warren, that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. And they would debate it back and forth. And one of Munger's famous lines was, if you think about it, Warren, you'll end up agreeing with me because you're smart and I'm right. Buffett and Munger built Berkshire Hathaway into one of the 10 most valuable companies in the world. It's currently worth about $780 billion. And over the years, their annual shareholder meetings became known as Woodstock for Capitalists. Well, if nearly every hotel room in the metro was booked and reservations at downtown restaurants are full, it could only mean one thing. It's Berkshire Hathaway weekend. Shareholders from... They developed this extraordinary ritual of answering questions from anybody who wanted to ask a question. You had to be a Berkshire shareholder, but if you were, you could ask any question you wanted and they would take them. And people didn't just ask about the business. They also asked about life. You know, how can I become a smarter person? What should I look for in a spouse? How do you make lots of friends and get people to like you and work with you? Could you please expand on how do you maintain your good uh, mental and physical health? Everyone has uh, personal dreams and uh, at different ages. Um, maybe dreams will come differently. And uh, what's your dream now? And what kind of answers would Charlie Munger give? So he would say things like, always do the right thing, and if your friends don't like it, 
to hell with them, get new friends. And, you know, he had hundreds of these one-liners that he would uncork for people about how to be ambitious to live a fuller life. The toxic people who are trying to fool you or lie to you who aren't reliable in meeting their commitments. The great lesson of life is get them the hell out of your life. Yep. And do it fast. Do it fast. If all you succeed in doing in your life is to get early rich from passive holding of little bits of paper, and you get better and better at only that for all your life, it's a failed life. And what was the dynamic like between Buffett and Munger up on the stage? On the Berkshire Hathaway stage, they played really distinct roles. So Buffett definitely was the lead actor. Munger was definitely the supporting actor. It was an act. They totally were equals in private life and in their business practice. But on stage, those were the roles they played. And the other aspect of those roles is Buffett was the one who would sort of deliver these long stem winder answers that would go on for five or ten minutes. And then he would turn to Munger and he would say, Charlie, do you have anything to add? And half the time Munger would say, uh, I've got nothing to add. Okay. <laughs> and the other half, Munger would come out with some zinger, some incredible one-liner that would just completely burst the bubble of like a million people working in an entire industry. Well, I would rather throw a viper down my shirt front than hire a compensation consultant. But you know, if you mix raisins with turds, they're still turds. I can be optimistic when I'm nearly dead. Surely the rest of you can handle a little inflation. <laughs> Warren, if people weren't so often wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. Yeah. You know, the audience just loved this stuff. And they would howl with laughter. And as soon as Buffett would finish, people would know he was about to turn to Munger. And then they would, the whole crowd would fall silent because they wouldn't want to miss one of the seven words Munger was about to speak. Munger developed a cult following of his own and an anthology of his speeches and one-liners called Poor Charlie's Almanac became an international bestseller. A lot of people sort of seem to think that Munger was Warren Buffett's sidekick, but is that fair? I don't think so. I think he was Warren Buffett's equal partner. He didn't have the same extent of equity ownership in Berkshire Hathaway so he never became as rich as Buffett did. But Buffett himself has said repeatedly that without Charlie Munger, Berkshire Hathaway today would be a shadow of what it is now. But Munger's life was much more than just Berkshire Hathaway. That's after the break. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? 
That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Charlie Munger grew up in Nebraska. He was married twice, and he experienced his fair share of tragedy. In 1955, shortly after his first marriage ended in divorce, Munger's son Teddy died of leukemia. He was just nine years old. And in 1978, Munger lost his sight in one eye and had to have it removed after a failed eye surgery. And all these things, I think they, they taught him that you know, life is frail, and the difference between success and failure is a very fine line. He also talked about never feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah, so he he had this wonderful expression. He said, if you feel sorry for yourself, you just add another obstacle to your ability to get over it. And when he lost the vision in his eye and then lost the eye, he started teaching himself Braille. And then eventually he figured out that he could see well enough to get by. And ultimately he ended up even seeing well enough to drive, although I'm told passengers in his car were never too sure about that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's kind of an amazing thing because he, I once asked him, did he blame the eye surgeon who tried to fix the vision in his bad eye and ended up bungling the surgery so that Munger lost his eye. And he said, no, because the, you know, 5% of those surgeries fail on average. And I just happened to be one of the 5%. And he had no rancor about it at all. He just got on with it. How do you think those experiences affected how he did business? I have to say, of of the many business people I've met over the decades, I've been a financial journalist. I think Charlie Munger is probably the wisest I've ever met. He understood how life and systems work, and he tried to make it through life without making enemies. And in all the business dealings that he had, everybody who I could find ever who dealt with him always felt that they had gotten the better half of the deal. You know, a lot of people think of capitalism as a like dog-eat-dog system. And that's not the way he thought of it. And it's not the way he practiced it. That's really extraordinary. And I think... It comes from his background. Where else could it come from? Is there any one piece of advice from Charlie Munger that sticks with you? He had an expression that I came to call soya um, because that was, we could print that if we had to. But it it was actually sit on your ass. And I abbreviated that as soya because it was more polite. But what he meant was that most of the time, the stock market is more or less going to give you the correct price for what things are worth. But every once in a while, things go haywire, like the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, and obviously COVID in 2020. And then you don't 
sit on your ass. Then you grab with both hands and you buy all the cheap stocks you can lay your hands on. And then you go back and you sit on your ass again until it happens again. And you let all that time go by and you just sit on your ass. And that was what made Munger his money. Investing has changed so much during Charlie Munger's lifetime. There's now all these day traders on Robinhood and there's meme stocks. How did he feel about that? Well, he hated it. During the sort of the meme stock boom, meme stock mania of 2021, Munger was really disturbed at the extent to which a bunch of the online brokerage firms and trading apps seemed to be encouraging novice traders to trade furiously, you know, introducing them to options trading, sending out alerts, trying to get people to trade even more. And his concern was that people were losing the vital distinction between investing and gambling. And Munger felt a lot of people were taking their like gambling urge and like reapplying that Jones to the stock market. And it just doesn't belong there. Munger was also a major critic of crypto, which he often called crypto crapo. In a Wall Street Journal op-ed earlier this year, he called on the U.S. government to ban it. I don't think there are good arguments against my position. I think the people that oppose my position are idiots. That's Munger in an interview with CNBC earlier this year. It's just ridiculous that anybody would buy this stuff. Does Munger's traditional approach to investing, sort of long-term value investing, still hold up in today's world? Well, it does. Um, It's not for everybody. You know, the, the great thing, and both Munger and Buffett have advocated this for a long time, the great thing is if you want to just put your money in a stock index fund and own the entire market with no effort, you can do that. Um, it costs almost nothing. You don't have to worry that you picked the wrong stock or the wrong time to buy it. Um, you might have to wait a long time to recover from a stock market crash, but you're not going to end up owning something that misses out. And the strategy that Munger and Buffett follow, value investing, over longer periods, I think, will do fine. Just a few weeks ago, in one of Jason's last conversations with Munger, he asked him how he'd like to be remembered after he died and what he'd like written for his epitaph. I asked him that twice. I I asked him once in 2019, and he gave me a long Buffett-like answer that probably went on for 200 words. But this time he said, I tried to be useful. And he said it several times. And what I found fascinating about that was he didn't say I was useful. He said, I tried to be useful. Um, Because I think... That he was sure of. That he tried. That he tried. Yeah. And it would be up to other people to determine whether 
he actually was useful. That's all for today, Friday, December 1st. The Journal is a co-production of Spotify and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode by Justin Baer and Nicole Friedman. The show's made by Annie Baxter, Kylan Burtz, Catherine Brewer, Maria Byrne, Victoria Dominguez, Pia Gadkari, Rachel Humphreys, Matt Kwong, Kate Linebaugh, Jessica Mendoza, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Enrique Perez de la Rosa, Sarah Platt, Alan Rodriguez Espinosa, Heather Rogers, Jonathan Sanders, Pierce Singy, Jivika Verma, Lisa Wang, Catherine Whalen, Tatiana Zamis, and me, Ryan Knudsen. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner, Nathan Singapak, and Peter Leonard, with help this week from Sam Baer. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Katherine Anderson, Peter Leonard, Bobby Lord, Emma Munger, and Blue Out Sessions. Fact-checking by Kate Gallagher, Sophie Hurwitz, and Adam Shabu. And before we go, I have some really exciting news. We now have some pretty incredible journal swag for sale. I've been wearing it around for months now, and I have to say, it's pretty great. There's a link to where you can buy it in our show notes. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.